Hello, and welcome to Horror Nerds at Church. My name is Matt, and I am the editor of the podcast. Before we launch into this episode on Friday the 13th, Part 2, Pace and Joe wanted me to take a brief moment to share the content warnings and a brief message before this episode. Content warnings for this episode include use of an ableist term in the name of a character from the film, discussion of the biblical clobber passages, and mention of HIV-AIDS. Please know that due to the scope and potential harm of the clobber passages and the limited amount of time we gave on the topic in the episode, links to resources and further reading on refuting the clobber passages are included in the show's notes. Horror Nerds at Church is a sex-positive podcast, and we firmly believe that queer people are created and beloved by God as they are, not in spite of their queerness, but because of it. We strongly reject theology and biblical interpretation that does not affirm the expansiveness, inherent goodness, and diversity of queer identities. Now, without further ado, Friday the 13th, Part 2. Greetings! You are listening to Horror Nerds at Church, a podcast where we take a deep dive into a horror film and talk about what it can teach us about God, the Bible, and each other. My name is Joe, and I am yet another aspiring camp counselor, inexplicably (laughs) headed to the same scene of the crime that I've heard about, but somehow I think, nah, that's not going to happen to me. Right. And I'm Pace and I am the potato vendor that sold Jason the bag that he puts over his head <laughs> for the whole film. Um, can you can you imagine if the whole franchise just proceeded with the potato sack instead of the iconic horror ma- hockey mask? Right. And what's so wild to me, and we can talk about this when we get to parts 3D, uh, parts three and four. I just call it parts 3D Um, (laughs) because the hockey mask first appears in part three, the movie we're going to cover in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. And then by part four, like the poster of part four has the all it is, is the mask in a pool of blood with a knife sticking through it. So it's like already just from one scene, uh, just from one um introduction to it in part three it became like identified with jason by the time part four came out a few years later so it's just like wild to me the evolution of jason's uh mask i guess starting i i had no idea that the um the mask with the knife um stabbing into it was the first major iteration of that because um that was my first time uh, my first real memory of this franchise. It's a very, it's a very uh, evocative and I suppose iconic uh, poster. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll get we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. That's in a few weeks. But um, mm-hmm. this week we're covering Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. We'll talk about that in a moment. But before yeah. we get into that, um, how have you been, Joe? Oh my goodness, I've been fantastic. I am excited, Pace. 
Have you ever heard of a weighted blanket or do you have a weighted blanket? I do not, but I have long wanted one. My um, dear friend has been trying to get me on the weighted blanket train for as long as I've known him about two years now. So it's like it is on my list. They're just so expensive. But I hear they're worth it. They are. I got mine on a monthly payment plan <laughs> and it's coming in it's coming in this week and I will report back to you. Um but for right now I can say I'm super excited. It did take me a while to purchase the blanket because you really have to find out what what might work best for you in terms of the fabric and how how much you want it to weigh. So I mean it yeah. is it like like you said, it is an investment. Um, but if you do your research, I'm, it, it can be an exciting and you know probably really healthy thing. That's part of the anxiety I have about getting one too. Is like I am um, they they give you like recommendations based on how much you weigh. But of course, right. I weigh more than anything that any of them recommend. But like it, it's just so <laughs> well. I, I, I weigh significantly more than the average person. So it's one of those things that's just like, I don't I don't even know where to begin with this. Like, should I just get the heaviest one? But that's like 50 pounds. And like, will I get crushed in my sleep? I don't know. So it's like, it's, yeah. there's a lot of anxiety about it. But I am excited to hear your report back. Um, yeah. So. I, I'll, uh, I'll let you know. How about you, Pace? What's going on with you? Oh, I don't even know. Um, It's just been a whirlwind. It is trying to launch the podcast season two we've been recording a lot of episodes back to back so it's mm-hmm. weird to even remember where we are like in the order of things um but let's see it's getting close to fall semester and i am not at all ready yep. with anything i haven't even done my financial aid yet which was girl neither am i <laughs> april of 2021 and is now october and i still haven't i mean, october is now august and i still haven't done it so it's like i have to do that mm-hmm. i have to register mm-hmm. for classes i have to start working my fucking dissertation who knows when that will happen so it's just a lot it's i'm feeling that you know that back to school rush that uh you do when you are in Mm -hmm. grad school or even when you're like a kid i think that starts like when you're getting ready to go back to school even in grade school so that sounds like such a scholarly life look at you (laughs) you're a scholar (laughs) face for better or worse you're a scholar (laughs) (laughs) um so let's see. Uh, just a quick announcement about this. As a reminder, I'm trying to remind us, uh, remind our listeners, as for the first few episodes of season two, is that unlike last season where we went through the entire Halloween franchise in one block and then we had a few one-offs, we are mixing the one-off films into the Friday the Thirteenth franchise a little bit to kind of diversify mm. it. So if you don't really like Friday the Thirteenth, you don't have to wait uh 12 weeks <laughs> for that franchise to end before you can start listening to our podcast again um so we're going to try to have a little bit of mixture in there so next week instead of covering friday the 13th part three next week we're covering um the lost boys and we already recorded that episode it's a lot of fun so definitely come back for that it's uh we have special guest Ben Monroe, who's a horror author on that so stay tuned fabulous for that human episode. being mm-hmm. right um so uh, so yeah, so Lost Boys will be next week, and then after that, we're going to do uh, Friday Thirteenth Part Three, Friday Thirteenth Part Four, and then we have a special surprise 
episode in between parts four and parts five, which <laughs> we're still kind of in the works of, so I don't want to reveal it yet. But um, stay tuned because we're going to announce who's going to be on that episode. We're going to have a guest. It's going to be fun. It's literally a surprise even to us. <laughs> <laughs> I know as it's in the process. But of speaking of like theology of process theology uh, how everything is in the state of becoming and so One of our my favorite kinds of theology of our podcasts are in the state of becoming <laughs> who knows what's gonna happen that was a beautiful analogy for process theology <laughs> bravo bravo pace i love process theology yeah. that's something you? we need to get into some more we need to find a good horror film that would have good connections to process theology so we can do a deep dive into process thought because i love it it's so good like you said it's my favorite branch of theology i don't know pace if process theology basically defined is in is you know god and existence in the process of becoming aren't these franchises process the theologically processing (laughs) yes that's a good point maybe we should do a deep dive into process theology when we cover halloween um, Halloween Kills later this year, since that's the franchise in the process of becoming as we speak. Uh, mm-hmm. so. I'm I'm so excited. There's so much to look forward to in terms of horror movies and what we're doing here on our podcast. But for today, we are going to be doing Friday the 13th Part 2, directed by Steve Miner, which was released on May 1st, 19. 19- 81. Uh, I didn't exist yet. <laughs> uh, uh, Pace, but, right? Yeah. So, you know, how did you first become aware of this movie? What were some of your first memories of it? God, I don't even know. Like, I, I think I talked about this in our first episode of Friday the 13th, uh, where we covered the first entry. It's like, this is one of those franchises that existed before I was born. So I kind of grew up like always knowing it existed and always knowing who Jason Voorhees was and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and of course, associating him with the hockey mask, which doesn't make an appearance <laughs> in this film. Yeah. So I can't really say or pinpoint like when I first saw this movie. I'm sure what I probably saw it on TV, like every Friday the 13th year round um, channels like TNT or whatever will do marathons of the Friday the 13th franchise. Right. So I'm sure it like came, came across at some point. Uh, but I really started to get in the habit of watching the Friday the 13th films myself and like marathoning them, owning them, and just being a part of my own uh, horror life of watching these movies almost annually at this point. Right, right. Uh, Probably like in my late 20s, early 30s. So that's really when I became like a true Friday fan, I think, was with that. Um, Hmm. What about you? What's your first memory of this film? Is this the first time you've seen it or do you know if you've seen it before? I don't think I've seen this movie uh, before, and as for my memories of it, um, I think I may have misspoke a little, actually, regarding the uh, hockey mask with the knife going through the eye as my first time, uh, my first real memory of uh, this franchise. I think, uh, especially now that we've watched Friday the 13th Part 2, I think my first memory of the franchise was the poster that didn't contain the hockey mask. And it was, uh, I guess it's supposed to be the outline of Jason. And yeah, yeah. 
it's Crystal Lake inside his uh, mm-hmm. his outline. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that might be actually my first uh, memory of the franchise altogether, not specifically uh, part two. And I think even as a kid, I remember thinking to myself, how come those posters don't have the hockey mask? Um, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's some of my earliest memories. I know. It's the first three movies like i like i was saying earlier don't even have the husk hockey mask on the poster like it doesn't even enter until the third movie and even the poster for halloween part three uh is playing with a silhouette kind of image from the first two posters but it has since it's 3d it has jason's machete like pointing pointing at the viewer coming out of like a curtain or something so uh so it really was uh, part four where the mask became prominent but uh, yeah but I just, I don't know. This franchise is just so fun. Like, oh, we'll get into it. I don't know. It's just, there. <laughs> we talked about this before, but like the Halloween franchise, you have probably the the best slasher of all time with Halloween. And then right. it just goes so downhill by the time you get to like parts uh, five and six. And mm. then you have the Rob Zombie film. Like, it's just a mess. This mm-hmm. one is like every single entry. There, There's still ups and downs, but every single entry right. is just a fucking good time. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. So. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and as we, as we continue to review the movies in this franchise, I, uh, I will, I guess I'll see for myself because I don't, remember a lot of the movies in this franchise too much but i'm, I'm really looking forward to going through it and i i take your word for it that this is going to be fun <laughs> yep yep um i well i guess i should do this now because before hmm. we get too much further into it be, mm-hmm. now that i'm rewatching it but like my favorite entry in the franchise is actually part three the one we're going to be reviewing in two weeks hmm. uh, okay and doing next so i wonder after we watch this and we do our kind of our recap of all the our retrospective episode um we'll have to check back in and see if that has changed if it part three is still my favorite or not but uh, that, right now that, but right now it is so we'll see that's i i will be curious to see if that is also a, a still still the still the case um well you yeah. know al- along along those lines are do you have any background or behind the scenes info about this movie, Friday the 13th part two? Yeah, this was similar to Halloween. Like it was a surprise success. Like horror as a genre really just people just did not put is in the seventies and eighties horror was such a thing. Like it, but it was kind of one of those things that nobody really liked to talk about or right. see because it was, it was like the, um, the trashy movies and you would have like it wasn't real cinema but then so for the exorcist we talked about in our first episode of the season with richard Lindsay and Mm -hmm. halloween like we're just huge runaway successes friday the 13th was one of those movies that everybody thought was just gonna be one of those trashy movies that enters the theater and then just kind of falls out but it was a huge (laughs) success so immediately you have sean cunningham and steve minor like being asked by Paramount to make a sequel and uh, to kind of capitalize in on the success. Um, and they, they're like, well, where do we go? The killer right. died at the end of season. I mean, at the right. end of uh, Friday 13th part one. So um, in the book and documentary Crystal Lake Memories, they kind of 
there's some interviews with both of them and they kind of talk a little bit about the development of this and how that twist ending with frog boy Jason at the end of part (laughs) one was just supposed to be a dream. It wasn't supposed to like be the next character, but they're like, well, I guess that's the direction we're going to go is we're going to pick up with Jason. Um, So that kind of became the basis of the story. Uh, Jason was all grown up. Uh, They decided and they decided to kind of keep it at the camp setting, keep it kind of similar to the first one. Um, And so that, that's kind of how this film started. And remember Friday 13th Mm -hmm. part one, the original came out in 1980. This came mm-hmm. out in 1981, and Friday yeah. the 13th Part Three 3D comes out in 1982. The first just three movies them out. come out yep. like just boom, boom, boom. So it's mm-hmm. like the the production rate is just why. Like, how can you start from scratch and then have a movie come out like in less than a year after the first one? A sequel? I just don't understand. Like, yep. they must have been on coke or something i don't know to make that (laughs) well i mean it was the 80s so yeah uh yeah uh no i i'm i'm picking up on a little bit of process theology there my friend (laughs) like (laughs) oh okay well you know this is jason and this is the direction we're gonna go (laughs) yep yep um well uh so yeah i want to remind our listeners to if you are interested in kind of the behind the scenes um of this definitely check out crystal lake memories both the book or the documentary or both actually uh they're they're fascinating um and as i talked about daniel ferens who wrote halloween six and one of my favorite entries in halloween six is the director for the uh documentary so definitely check that out for some more behind the scenes information about Mm. this franchise Mm -hmm. Uh, i have to add that to my reading list so are we ready to go through the movie? No, oh, let's do it. Let's do it. I'm ready to go back to Crystal Lake. <laughs> right. <laughs> so two months after the Camp Crystal Lake murder, so this is 1979, uh, the final girl from the first film, Alice, Adrian King, is in her apartment. And just imagine, like, to be mm-hmm. Adrian King and to get the call, like, please come back for the sequel, only to die right. in the first place. But anyway. Um, well, speaking literally- of... Bu- Speaking of behind the scenes things, I I pulled up whatever happened to Adrian King, and it turns out as a result of Friday the Thirteenth, uh, things got a little rocky for her. She apparently took a break from acting. Uh, there was apparently some sort of stalker involved. I <laughs> oh my goodness, yeah, uh, a lot of uh, you know rocky things happening. <laughs> Jesus, yeah, I mean so sad like how frequent that kind of shit is in hollywood Ugh. right anyway the, but, it's the it comes with the territory i guess of doing this kind of movie i guess yeah i mean I, well alice literally so in the remember this was before vhs tapes are really a thing so <laughs> it's like to refresh the memories of the audience they decided yes. i guess to have alice dream like the entire plot of the first film <laughs> 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 it's just how, like this clip show of like all is, the highlights of it, season one. I, like how, the first episode. How convenient that Alice's dreams are so lucid right? that we can be clued in on what happened before. <laughs> yep. Uh, so she dreams that literally the entire part of the first film. Uh, and then she wakes up, goes to feed her cat, where she sees the severed head of Pamela Voorhees in her fridge. Don't she you hate is... when you open the fridge and that happens? Right? 
and then she's murdered by an unknown assailant with an ice pick. And I just want to say, like, the evolution from Michael Myers, who kind of set up that scene with his grave, uh, with the grave of his sister Judith in his Lori encounters when she's running away from Michael in the first Halloween film. So it's like the weird, like attention to detail, all these killers have to like set up these elaborate things to scare their victims before the victim actually is killed. It's just like, what attention to detail? Like you could be an interior decorator, Jason, (laughs) like with the amount of attention to detail and setting a scene you have in that. Like who who thinks I'm gonna put a head in the refrigerator and just wait in the shadows until um Alice decides she's hungry for a midnight snack and then I'll kill her once she sees. <laughs> but like what if she just like opens the fridge and reaches in blindly and doesn't even like right, exactly. notice there's a head and just goes about her yeah. way? Like will he like, kill her then or is he gonna wait till he notices? Exactly. I, you know, there's a there's a certain element of luck involved, and apparently luck is on Jason's side. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and for for anyone who bristles at the thought of being murdered by an ice pick, um, I, I don't want to jump too far ahead into our podcast to the theological part, but death by death by ice pick or death by a large sharp object is is an age old way to die. Remember Jael? Am I saying yes. her name right? <laughs> the tent peg that goes into yes. the temple or whatever. The, the tent peg, yes. So you know, a timeless way to kill. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so um, then the movie. I guess picks up five years later, so it's now 1984. So mm. keep the timeline of the Friday films in mind as we go through, because it is wild. So this film is actually set three years in the future from when it came out, whereas the first movie was set one year in the past okay. before it came out. So just keep that in mind, because um, okay. <laughs> it becomes really convoluted as we continue to go through the franchise. Mm-hmm. But um, Paul Holt, who's played by John. Yuri, I believe is how you say his name. He Mm. opens a training school for camp counselors at another location on the shore of Crystal Lake. A whole host of other counselors are there. So we have Sandra and her boyfriend, Jeff. We have gross womanizer, Scott, prankster, Ted, handsome Mark, who uses a wheelchair for mobility and who is one of horror's rare, visibly disabled protagonists. And Mm. it's not not even relevant to the plot. He's just a disabled individual who's given agency and kind of like a flesh out characterization. So... That's 1981, and yet Hollywood doesn't do this now. Just as an aside, sorry, <laughs> but as a tangent, as a disabled I, person myself, I pay attention to this shit. I, I, no, 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 and that's that's wonderful. Uh, thank you for bringing up the observation. But I, I have a more cynical interpretation of why this might have been made, and, and probably crossed your mind too as a horror movie fan. Did you want to hear sure. it, or should I just like keep that on the down low? No, go for it, please. Well, I mean, we'll get to this eventually in, in our walkthrough, but, you know, when um, hunky football player guy dies, uh, mm-hmm. he, he you know, he get he's in his wheelchair and he gets kicked down the stairs. I mean, yep. the visual the visual of that in a horror movie is a mode of death. It morbidly looks good. <laughs> so it does. It does. That, that's probably, you know, it's probably what came to mind with these folks. Like, yeah, let's kill a guy in a wheelchair. But, so you, you know. can roll down the steps backwards. Yeah, um, but you know, it's 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 nice that there's some disability representation in Camp Crystal Lake. Yep, for sure. Uh, and then we meet the rest of the cast of characters. There's Vicky, 
Terry, who has the dog Muffin, uh, Paul's <laughs> assistant, who is a psych student, Jenny, played by Amy Steele. And just by the fact I named her name, you can probably guess she's going to be the final girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that night, they all arrived at their camp training program, I guess. And that night, Paul tells a story about the murders of, of the now shuttered Camp Crystal Lake, which is on the other side of the lake, I guess, uh, beginning with the drowning of Jason in 1957, and then his mother Pamela's killing spree that followed in 1958 and 1979, and then her murder. And then he tells the story that, according to legend, Jason survived and lives near the abandoned Camp Crystal Lake, killing anyone who he encounters out of vengeance for his mother's death. (laughs) Then the jokester Ted scares everyone at the end of the story by wearing a mask and carrying a spear. And like jumping at them in the fire and stuff. <laughs> oh, Ted. Right. Uh, later that night, Crazy Ralph comes to the camp to warn everyone. But before he can do so, so remember Crazy Ralph from the first Remember one. from the first first movie, yep. just out of nowhere, just walks into the scene. Yep. Uh, he goes to warn everyone, but he is killed inexplicably with a wire that somehow is thrown over an entire tree to strangle him. <laughs> I... Okay, so when Jason kills, the laws of physics suddenly pause. Apparently, yes. <laughs> um, then the next day, uh, we pick up with Jeff and Sandra, who I guess inspired by the story, uh, ghost story, decide to run off to find Camp Crystal Lake, uh, mm. where they are stopped by the deputy. He returns them to camp, but on his way back, I guess, follows a man wearing a potato sack. Uh, over his head into the woods he follows him to a shack where the deputy is then killed that that was (laughs) despite the absurdity of following a man with a potato sack on his head into the woods i I actually liked that scene you know the the growing horror of realizing that this abandoned shack is as terrifying as it looks on the outside yep (laughs) and then um let's see that night, uh, Paul decides to take the counselors out for a night of revelry at a local bar. Uh, Jeff and Sandra are forced to stay behind because of their shenanigans of running away. And Terry, Scott, Mark, and Vicky also choose to stay behind. Uh, Terry decides to skinny dip and Scott steals her clothes. But then he gets caught in a rope trap. Um, it's not clear if Jason set the rope trap or if there's just rope traps like the woods are booby trapped. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so Terry goes to get help, but she comes to comes back to see that he has been killed. She is then killed as well off screen. Like, like, Mark, like the, the worst way you could die in a horror movie. <laughs> right. At least let me die on screen if I'm going exactly. to Exactly. You know, yeah. at least let me have a scream you know and try to run away maybe show a little cleavage (laughs) um let's see uh meanwhile where did we leave oh yeah so then mark and vicky are flirting with each other mark goes outside he's the man um who uses a wheelchair for mobility and he is Mm -hmm. killed by machete to the face and then Mm -hmm. jeff and sandra are killed by a spear while they're having sex Vicky is then killed with a knife. So everybody who remained at the camp is now dead. Yes, yes. And uh, one one point to bring up is that this is a rather large cohort of counselors this time around. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting that they decided to do that for this movie. Yeah. Uh, and what's really interesting is that still a bunch of the counselors are at the bar like Ginny, ted and paul are still there yeah 
and so Ginny is kind of going off on this rant. I'm using yep. her like psychology degree, psychology. I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Jason, who witnesses his mother death, would likely be lost and confused, and has no distinction between right and wrong, death and life. Just a deep sense of loss for his mother. And Ted and Paul are making fun of her and basically dismiss her and say, "Well, Jason's just an urban legend." So Paul and Ginny decide to leave the bar to go back to the camp, leaving Ted and a few others behind. So I guess they survive their fates are unknown we don't know uh but (laughs) Ginny and paul find the camp they're trashed now the counselors are around paul is ambushed and incapacitated by the killer who then chases Uh, jenny through the woods she ends up at his um shack and sees pamela's head and bloodied sweater on the altar of the shack like surrounded by candles like i said attention to detail he could be an interior decorator yeah (laughs) Call call HGTV. I mean, we have an idea for a show. <laughs> um, she she as Jason is like uh chasing her into the shack. She puts on the sweater, um, that Pamela's sweater, like blood stain that has got to smell disgusting. Uh, and right before <laughs> Jason comes into the shack, so Jenny is using her psychology degree student superpowers and is able to convince Jason that she is jason's mother Mm. and that he needs to stop the killing and it's wild that they actually got um bet betsy palmer to come back just for this weird like just voiceover scene yeah Yeah. oh i that 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 is really interesting i i don't know what was going through her mind when she got the call or were or when her agent told her hey you want to come back for like a minute and a half uh but as for what Ginny does, I that was kind of really ingenious. That's right? a really this is, a creative way to try and defeat the killer. Try being the yeah. operative word. Yep, yep. And this is um, a recurring theme where people try to use some sort of psychology to outsmart Jason. It happens again in part four and a few other places. So it, we'll, we'll keep coming back to this, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so... She actually is kind of successful, like you're saying, at convincing Jason that she is Pamela until he um, sees Pamela's severed head behind her. And he realizes, oh, wait, you're not my mom. My mom's dead. She's over there. So uh, he goes to kill her. Paul, right at the right time, comes into the shack and rescues Ginny. And the two of them, Jason and Paul, fight. Jason is about to kill Paul when Ginny hits Jason in the shoulder with jason's machete seemingly seemingly killing him at least getting him to fall down like seeming to be dead uh Mm. the two go back to their cabin in the camp they hear a sound outside and open the door to see muffin surprise surprise (laughs) because there was a um the uh they they, there was jeff and sandra when they were kind of running around they found a carcass that looks like it could have been a dog in the woods it was implied that might have been muffin and remember i got emotional about that (laughs) yep you're wondering if jason also kills dogs like michael myers does but mm -hmm. we're not we're not sure yet because is this a dream or not we because jason bursts through the window right after they discover muffin grabs Ginny, and then she wakes up the next morning being loaded into an ambulance so it's like was that a dream who the fuck knows yeah. <laughs> um and we also get jason's face reveal because he's not wearing his potato sack anymore and you get to see his face as he goes through the window um and then uh so i guess it's jason grabbing her must have been a dream as she's being loaded into the ambulance she's asking where paul is but no one's giving her an answer 
Um, and then the shot goes to Pamela's head on the altar with Jason nowhere to be found and the credits roll. <sighs> you know, uh, when when we walk through it like that, it seems like a fairly straightforward movie, surprisingly. Yeah. I mean, these movies are like, uh, these movies, like like I said, they're, they're pumping them out like one after yeah. the other. So they're, like you said, very straightforward, very, just a lot of putting in as much kills as much gore and of course right. a little bit of nudity and sex in there uh, as much as you can and that's basically the movie like going from yeah. one setup kill setup to the next yeah well and you know it, it, for those reasons it's easy to dismiss a movie like this but um as you'll remember from when we screened it together uh from the opening sequence you can already tell that uh um that the directing is a is a little bit better for the for this movie i mean you know the convenient dream sequence aside <laughs> um there are some directing notes that you'll see as alice is walking through uh her house um that will be recognizable in steve Miner's later work like the mm -hmm. the part the part where she's walking through the hallway i thought that really built up the tension that that was such a uh an interesting way to follow uh alice to her demise i suppose yeah. and what's interesting is this is his first directing credit before that he had some pro producing credits and stuff and he worked with sean s cunningham on stuff like the last house on the left and on the first mm. Friday the 13th so it's very interesting that like this was his very first directing um directorial debut and yep. he already is like there's a skill and artistry there um and then of course we absolutely know he directs friday the 13th part three he directs house he directs mm -hmm. halloween h2o your favorite mm -hmm. entry in that franchise pretty much indeed indeed um, <laughs> and also dawson's creek and smallville Ugh. i hate those shows so much the the real horrors <laughs> right but um, uh quick quick question uh do we do we know whose house or what is this an apartment Alice is staying in like where like she seems to have been plopped in this really these really nice digs is it a relative right? or <laughs> it doesn't say and it's only a few months after the first um film like it takes place a few months later so it's like right. she was a student i imagine she probably was taking a break from her studies after right she just witnessed all these people killed and stuff but it's like i mean doesn't really say where she is yeah well i mean and you know we both know that there are you know many ways to process trauma um with that being said it's just kind of surprising that as she explains on the phone to her mom um her she she needs to you know um uh evaluate her life and get herself together right but it's interesting that she's choosing to do this by herself in this big house it, to me it's an interesting choice after you've just endured an attempted serial killer's rage right uh, and like she has a cat which is adorable but like, <laughs> yeah like kind of speaking to we talked a lot about this with the halloween series and like the horror of suburbia kind of being yeah. on the starting to come into play like we have she she doesn't seem like she just has her windows open. It's like you would think yeah. after being chased by a serial killer, you would kind of yeah. shut your drapes, keep your windows locked, you know, but I right. guess not. Right. So. Yeah. Society, I guess, just isn't really that on edge. Um, 
in those times. I mean, if you're going to look at this movie as a as a societal commentary, right? Um, so I guess any other thoughts on the movie before we get into our deep theological dive? Yeah i I want to emphasize again that it it's there are a lot of reasons, many of them justified, um, to dismiss a movie like this, but. I really enjoyed it. I mean, you know, it's not serious cinema by any stretch of the imagination, but it's fun. And director Steve Miner um, really puts in some craftsman puts some craftsmanship in mm-hmm. into the movie. And um, so, even though we know that the whole premise of this franchise was to jump on the horror bandwagon and you know follow in the successful footsteps of Halloween you know capitalism right um this is a this for what it is uh friday the 13th part two is um a story that is nicely told it's a it it it, it, it's it's the movie equivalent of a campfire story and yeah yeah, it really is and um it's interesting because it doesn't really have that surprise double twist ending like the first one does where you first find out that the killer is a woman and it's right um and it's the mom of jason the whole time uh pamela Voorhees, and then at the end you have that surprise twist ending of jason jumping out of the lake Uh, this movie really doesn't have many shocks it really doesn't have many jump scares it's just this kind of like very straightforward slasher film but it does up the violence and it ups the gore a little bit and that kind of becomes a trope of each in this early kind of what people call the golden age of slasher film in the mm. early 80s where it's just each uh subsequent sequel kind of becomes yeah. it kind of tries to up the violence and gore a little bit until the um motion picture association started to uh crack right. down a little bit on that which we get towards the mid 80s but it, it's right. just very interesting um because in in many ways it's I would say it's almost a better film than the first one. And we can talk about yeah. it when we get to the rating. But like, yeah. even though the first one kind of launches this franchise and has that really like thought out ending and stuff like that, this movie, mm-hmm. this movie is very successful, I think, at kind of launching the phenomena that would become Jason Voorhees. And just having, right. just like I, like both of us have been saying, it's just a good time. So it's fun. It is, yeah. Yeah. Well, and like you said, it doesn't have a lot of those jump scares and um other uh other shenanigans you know that really defined the first the first movie um but i do i i would argue that friday the 13th part two um still has shocks they're not in the form of jump scares they're not in the form of jump scares they're more in the form of it kind of makes you think um a good example for me would be the shack in the woods like mm-hmm. i i just you know it makes you think right like so jason lived in that shack all this right. time like how does he survive and um uh and you know it, it is it is a um in a what seems to be a remote area but you know how do we like didn't did not a stray hiker get lost and discover that and what what happened that jason uh, kill them. I just want to know what the logistics of living in a shack in the middle right? of the woods when you're undead <laughs> is like. Well, he's and not, then he's uh, not undead at this point. That comes into play later. Right now, he's still supposedly just a human. But that there are a lot of uh, interesting questions, though. Like, 
Yeah. What does he eat while he's well? Clearly, potatoes. Right. If he uses that as his headwear, <laughs> he, he had to have eaten the potatoes. But like, like, did his mom not know he was alive this whole time? Because Betsy, right. Palmer, as Pamela, really seems to think her son is dead, and like he's yeah. talking to her like through some weird like split personality or something, like a reverse right. Anthony Perkins and Psycho. I don't know exactly. But, like, yeah, she she clearly thinks her son is dead, and she's getting revenge. So. Was Jason just like keeping his identity secret from his mom this whole time? Yeah. And then how did he find out she died and like get her severed head and bring it to it? Exactly. Like you said, there's a lot of questions that the film just does not care to answer. It doesn't try to overthink it. It's just like it. it yeah. It seems. It seems like uh, someone during the creative uh, process of this of this movie said hey you know that part at the end of Psycho where it turns out his mom is a corpse in the basement what if the mom actually lived let's do that with Jason yep <laughs> but yeah um, that's a good that's a good clarification that you made that he's not the undead as of this point the explanation is he survived the drowning yep and he's just been living in the woods he's just an average person like it seems to be clear that he has some developmental right differences or disabilities where he it like he doesn't speak he doesn't say anything and yet he uh so he kind of has this very simplistic understanding as Ginny. yeah as Ginny was kind of mm-hmm. theorizing in the in the pub when she was talking about kind of like making a psychological profile for him or something but right. like it, it but he just seems to be like have average strength. He's not superhuman or anything. When he gets right. hit in the shoulder with a machete, that blow like takes him out. And then mm-hmm. we don't know if yeah. he comes, if he actually comes back at the end or if that's just right. a dream sequence. It kind of yeah. leaves us wondering. But, um, and we'll kind I wanna, of see Oh, yeah. please go. Go ahead. Well, no, no, no. I just, I just wanted to say I want to toss in one more attempt at thinking logically about this movie that you really shouldn't think too much about as you <laughs> said do. one more attempt um so i i just figured if you're a little kid like jason who survived a drowning like that wouldn't you emerge <laughs> it's just this is just really weird to articulate out loud but wouldn't you emerge and like i don't know uh crawl or whatever strength you have after that incident you know you're away towards help or like find a policeman or something with jason as we know him in this movie it just seems like he kind of settled in the forest right <laughs> like i mean and, how do you decide that <laughs> and like his shack that he lives in just looks like a um like it looks like he kind of built it himself out of spare yeah. pieces of like wood and shit he's found around and like there's some there's some corrugated metal that he has on the like it just feels like he's hey. kind of going around garbage dumps and collecting shit and building and, it and we see this yeah. gross ass toilet that he clearly has never cleaned in his life no in there it's, it's, just, it's not a priority for him <laughs> yep. but, uh, i I mean, yeah, which, you know, it kind of brings up the question, was he already fucked up even before the attempted drowning? Was this kid going to grow up to become a serial killer anyway? I mean, yeah, nature or nurture, who knows uh, with Jason. Uh, We kind of get an answer to that with uh, Jason goes to hell, so stay tuned for however many (laughs) entries that's to come. But like, one of my favorite movies as a kid. Yeah. 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 So, um, 
Well, I guess we're ready for our deep theological dive. What do you have for this movie? <laughs> I was I was really afraid that you were going to make me go first because I <laughs> I'm sort of a loss for any deeper theological themes, but maybe if you bring up what you came up with, I might be able to <laughs> go in that direction. Well, um there there are two things I want to say uh about this. The first is continuing with a thread that we had with the first entry mm-hmm. with um Friday the 13th the original uh is this idea of this kind of evolution uh or process here we go our process the mm-hmm. this kind of becoming of the slasher genre where um you start to see the trope like by this movie you pretty much have the tropes in place they just haven't fully clicked but you have jason taking people out for having sex you have jason taking people out for showing interest in having sex like when um mark and vicky are flirting with each other and then he gets killed by a machete like right after that uh so it's like you start to see this evolution of this slasher becoming kind of like this morality tale uh right which which didn't really exist before halloween and as john carpenter has said and as we talked about in that franchise that was not his intention for it to be this morality tale like glory was mm-hmm. not supposed to be this virginal character yet that's kind of how it became and the genre kind of took off from that so we mm-hmm. see with Ginny, like she she is the only woman in the the this only young woman in this who is not trying to have sex with anybody and she is the one right. who survived uh, mm-hmm. so that's not a coincidence so it's just interesting kind of keep that note as we go and the other thing i want to say quick um not really a theological deep dive unless we want to talk about like joseph campbell the hero with a thousand faces and kind of like the archetypes of story building mm-hmm. but it is something to pay attention to as we go through these movies is yeah. that we are starting to get the cast of characters that are featured in every single fucking slasher movie or teenage <laughs> horror film ever we have right. the jokester with ted we have the the skis ball with um uh what's his name uh scott we have terry who's kind of like scott. the bombshell who has that nude scene so it's like and we <laughs> we don't quite have the stoner character yet but yeah. that that's going to kind of come in with part three. But like we start to see the archetypes that just become and Paul's like the hunky leading man. And yeah. uh then we have um Ginny, like I was saying, who's the uh virginal kind of character, innocent person who makes it to the end as the final girl. So it's like we're starting to see these tropes emerge, and it's just very interesting to see the ways in which tropes are kind of tell we we form narratives. Uh yeah in the tropes we create and in the characterizations we create. And so another book that I want to bring up probably next uh, for part three or part four is um, Rene Girard and his mimetic desire. (laughs) And I want to talk a little bit about some of that as we go forward, because because there's a little bit of that scapegoating going on here and we'll Mm -hmm. see a lot more of that in future entries. So I'm just kind of putting a flag there for us to come back for that. It's amazing. So. In the last five minutes, you have mentioned concepts that are right up the alley of uh, um, our previous guest, Dr. Richard Lindsay, <laughs> yep. uh, you know, who was a fun guest. And uh, I hope to have him back um, at and some point. Also, our um, beloved professor, Jay Johnson, who uh, mm. 
who talks a lot about this stuff. So I hope we can get him on the podcast too. So that's because uh, it's funny if you're saying that on. because yep. um, uh, he talks a lot about Rene Girard and mimetic design yeah. and stuff like that. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, it would be amazing to have Dr. Johnson on our show as well. It's funny when you were, um, when you were trying to think of the stoner character and how it turns out we don't have that yet in Friday the 13th part two, my mind fast forwarded to 30 years later (laughs) and the actor Fran Kranz, who was the stoner archetype in cabin in the woods. And he did it very, (laughs) he did it very well. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So I, I guess, um, uh, my plan worked <laughs> to have you go first um, into the deep dive of theology. One thing that got stirred in my mind was um, the infamous book of Leviticus, right? Ooh, and so, yeah. and so that book is frequently brought up as you know a condemnation of the other, especially gay people, right? Um, but a prevailing a prevailing theory, especially one that a an Old Testament professor of mine had about Leviticus, was it's nothing of the sort. It is not a morality book. It is it's a purity book and purity in terms of cleanliness. Yeah. Um, and so one interpretation um, on that theme is. Uh, you know, take the infamous verse, a man shall not lie with another man as he would with a woman. So you get this, you know, uh, the, these, uh, this, this group of people, right? They're wandering the desert and they're trying to maintain the society as they wander through the desert. And, you know, you've got to have strong, solid, strong, solid rules for, you know, how you all are going to behave or otherwise, you know, the group is going to break up or some people are going to die of this and that. And um, so, you know, you, you make these strict purity rules. And my interpretation, I think I wrote a paper about this at some point in my seminary <laughs> career, um, of that infamous verse about a man lying with another man is that it's a good example of purity. Because, look, these people already don't have a great opinion of sex and it's probably because of their of their conditions of you know being in of having to survive in the desert right sex for them is you know a function of propagating their lost you know their lost group as they wander through the desert um and it's not necessarily something you you know you might do for fun and so uh, or you know desire is uh a better academic word that uh, Dr. J. Johnson would probably use. Um, and so that kind, you know, gay sex, I guess, um, especially as it's articulated in that verse, is condemned not as a, a moral failing, but as a sort of, ew, that's gross. You know, it's already gross enough that a man and a woman have to do it to make a baby. And you have to risk your, your, you know, you have a lot of impurity that you're risking to procreate. But, you know, now Mm -hmm. you want to sleep with like another man. Ew. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of like uh, forgetting to put um, 
hand sanitizer <laughs> on your hands yeah. kind of deal. That's the kind of repulsion that they're uh, revulsion that I would argue is being expressed in that infamous verse. It's not a moral failing. If you sleep with another man, you're not going to end up in hell um, or, 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 or punished. You're just going to be looked at as, you know, gross. You should take a bath the next time you run into an oasis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so safe sex, wrap it up. I mean, they didn't have that option back then, but you know, you know. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. Make sure you're exactly, taking your prep. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, being being responsible, being responsible in your conditions. Mm-hmm. And so, again, you know, these are people who are wandering the desert and are trying to keep their community together. And so, you know, again, it's not a moral failing. It's just a that's gross, and you may have put us in in danger, kind of thing. And so going from Leviticus to the whole archetype of, you know, the virginal final girl, um, I think I think the fact that, you know, the girl is always a virgin is me. I, w- I would argue, I guess I'm going on devil's advocate side here, and I really hate that term. A lot of cis white men use it. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, the devil but another... doesn't need an advocate, right? No, no, no he doesn't. Um, yep. I believe that he's he's his own advocate, right? I, the the original word for Satan, yep. an advocate or something like. That. Anyway, going off subject. Now we're getting too theological. Whereas ten right. minutes ago, I was not theological enough. Um, but I I think another another viewpoint to the whole purity thing can be it's not it's not this puritanical uh, commentary that's anti-sex. It's just a. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that's that's nasty. Why, you know, why are you doing it in this dirty um, bed in this dirty cabin? Like when well, Kevin Bacon in the first movie yeah, yeah. Was, was, you know, it's like, no, you can you you should you should do this in, in another way. So I yeah. guess the, I guess I guess what I'm trying to get at is that puritanical thinking is so deeply woven in American history that it seeps into Christian culture in a way that it shouldn't be in Christian culture. Well, yeah, I mean, it definitely comes out. uh, I don't want to go down a whole history lesson about kind of like the evolution of kind of purity culture and stuff, but there definitely is this kind of uh, American Christianity is kind of deeply entwined with uh, this kind these notions of, sexual purity and stuff and it's not unique to america to american christianity Mm -hmm. but i mean it's definitely part of american christianity in a to an extent that it isn't really um in european christianity it is but not Mm -hmm. to the same level but um well americans are just so damn good at it (laughs) right but i want to say a a few things about this because because you bring up a lot of great points that i want to uh, touch on the first is like you're saying about Leviticus exactly right uh, is k- kind of in the, the a lot of the ways that it is looked at in um, contemporary biblical scholarship and part- particularly like Christianity has a really bad relationship with the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament whatever you want to refer to it as <laughs> but mm-hmm. like if you think of it as a living text that is part like the bedrock of um, many Jewish uh, traditions and faiths still today, and also was the bedrock of the tradition that Jesus followed and his disciples followed. Like I... you, you understand that this is a way of the purity, like you're saying, is a way of setting people apart to be kind of a visible sign of 
that these are God's chosen people to the rest of the world. And how can we do that? Well, we are going to act differently. We're going to create these rules. And we do these rules not out of obligation to or out of any sort of oppressive thing, but it's kind of this joyful thing. It's like God has given us life. Look, God has led us into the promised land. God is mm-hmm. giving us daily manna to eat. Like, how can we show God our thanksgiving like how can we give back to god in any way god who is so much infinitely beyond us it's like Mm. well out of thanksgiving we're going to live into this kind of way of life that we we think is what god would want us to do and so Mm -hmm. it's not meant to be this like oh you need to follow all these rules or anything it's more it was uh many the way uh, many hebrew bible scholars look at now is like it was meant to be this kind of like joyful reaction to the promises that God has given God's people mm. as opposed to be this like prescriptive, you must do this or right. whatever. And um, right. yeah. And so, the other, oh, please go. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. I don't, I don't want to interrupt your train of thought. Go ahead. Oh, and then the other thing I just want to say is about the Leviticus passage about homosexuality and um, specifically that you mentioned, it's one of the passages that a lot of, queer biblical scholars and also um gay and lesbian liberations liberationists uh <laughs> biblical scholars also uh call like the clobber passages so there's a whole bunch yes. of them. Mm-hmm. um and leviticus is one of the main ones and another some of the others come out of paul's letters and you also have the genesis texts and stuff like that so um but one of the so, I'm going to make sure we link in the show notes because this is this is something that I think we could devote an entire podcast episode to kind of sure. going against the clobber passages because there's been so much arguing about it and it kind of is at the forefront of any sort of you see in the news Christians having mm-hmm. like Christian denominations having debates about whether or not to ordain people who are openly queer or whatever uh and the mm. clobber passages always come up as part of this and there's right. so much scholarship on it so i'm definitely going to link to show note uh in our show notes to some resources are really great on this if you're interested um for listeners if you're interested in learning more uh, right. about the clobber passages and kind of a lot of the arguments like joe was saying there's a lot of when you contextualize these passages it is not this prescriptive judgment against gay sex the way that it is often utilized in contemporary conversations. Um, and there's a lot of, a lot, a lot of biblical scholarship that really kind of tackles these. So I don't want to kind of go go into that aside to just say it's already out there and I want to make and um, check our show notes because I'll make sure to include some resources mm. there to learn more about the clobber passages. Mm, um, so, yeah. that, so that's what I want it's to talk important. about. So yeah, please, yeah, please go ahead, Joe. No, that's, that's important. Thank you for bringing up the, um, the clobber passages, which is, you know, something that's constantly on, on the minds of, um, of our community as queer Christians other theological thoughts on friday the 13th part two that's it for me like i said i definitely want to come back to some of some talk about uh renee gerard and maybe joseph campbell too Mm -hmm. and stuff as we go through the series uh Mm -hmm. so 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 stay tuned for that we'll go deeper into that but other than that i think i'm good what about you well uh, I, I don't know if you have uh, spoons or if we have time, but I was wondering if you could like give a little refresher about Joseph Campbell. And my, my, my specific question is 
um, isn't he the one who came up with the idea of grand narrative, which has now yeah. been essentially essentially cast aside by a lot of scholars? Well, yeah. So the um, the book I'm referencing is "The Hero with a Thousand Faces." It came out in 1949 mm-hmm. originally, yeah. and basically what he did is he looked at uh, kind of the tropes in many um, ancient cultures, mythologies, and of mm-hmm. course. Joseph Campbell, being a white guy, prioritizes mm-hmm. European narratives. And that's one of the reasons why his work has been very nuanced and I want to say discredited, but like there's been a lot yeah. of nuance and conversation about like how much should we be relying on Joseph Campbell here? Uh, but right. um, basically, he has this, he has a theory that basically there's this overall kind of archetypal narrative of the hero's adventure and certain things seem to follow the trope uh where they have um basically the hero begins in the ordinary world and he has to depart typically it's a he of course he has to depart the ordinary world with this call to adventure and then he has to pass through several trials um and then is assisted by oftentimes will have allies or a mentor figure stuff like that um And then there's usually some sort of uh, trope of death and resurrection in there. And of course, this is where Joseph Campbell veers into theology a little bit and kind of prioritizes kind of like ranks the mythology by basically prioritizing this this Christian narrative of Jesus and stuff. And that's something Rene Girard does too, um, where Rene Girard also is kind of approaching it from this literary archetypal way and Rene Girard basically says it uh, looks at these myths um and creates this art this similar archetypal narrative of mm-hmm. most myths have this kind of scapegoat yeah. who uh is when the community starts to have tension they if you can blame it on a scapegoat then you put the tension onto the scapegoat and that and kill the scapegoat and then that resolves the tension and so um gerard noticed that in jesus like the tension in this uh roman occupation of the ancient near east uh and kind of the turmoil there and all this political tension religious tension that is kind of scapegoated onto jesus and then jesus is killed and then so renee gerard talks about how kind of the twist there is jesus and jesus's resurrection unlike in most myths um when g when uh the hero comes back from the dead or comes back from being a scapegoat or whatever there's some sort Mm -hmm. of revenge or vengeance and so uh gerard kind of makes the comment or says that jesus's story twists that by jesus coming back from the dead and instead of seeking vengeance offers peace to the people Mm -hmm. who killed him and so that kind of ends the scapegoat cycle and there's also something in there about mimetic violence and mimetic desire which um i don't want to get too much into because this is already Mm -hmm. going deeper and longer than i was (laughs) expecting but hopefully that'll give you um our listeners a longer a oh (laughs) hey no 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 no, no, no. This is this is uh, wonderful, uh, and thank you, uh, Pace, for that um, for that excellent theological explanation. And um, because what I was getting at in terms of grand narrative is um, the danger 
of ignoring uh, the nuances um, in the in these in the horror movies, specifically the the different franchises, and um, by assigning it assigning them a singular narrative, right? So what I guess I'm critiquing is, um, you know, not just the concept of there has to be a final girl in every movie, there has to be a stoner in every movie, um, but uh, the popular notion, and I guess I should preface this with the um, oft oft used expression online, unpopular opinion, but unpopular <laughs> opinion, you know, um, lumping Jason, Freddy, and Michael together, and then even the notion of the Freddy versus Jason movies that would come out, I think, I think that's a little bit unfair to each of them. I think that there are nuances that distinguish all of them, and just because they happen to be serial killers who emerged <laughs> in the seventies and eighties, doesn't mean like they're the same, they're the same entity or similar in any way. They're I think they're very they're very individualistic. They have their own respective traits and tendencies. And so um in the field in the study of comparative religion, you know, the danger is when you're studying the other religion that you're comparing to, you know, whatever tradition or or so or scholarly location you're coming from. How do you distinguish between, you know, the actual um, authentic um, characteristics and nuances of that which you're observing versus just seeing what you're observing through your eyes? And so I think I think it would be interesting to kind of have like a a popular uh, popular comparative um, horror franchise field of study, you know, where um, we are not automatically saying uh, these patterns are all the same in each franchise because I think, and this is my premise, this is my the point I'm arguing, I think that's just as bad as dismissing a movie and saying, you know, oh, it's just, you know, a serial killer movie. So for the yeah. same reason that I'm defending Friday the 13th Part 2, um, you know, as a as a movie that's more, more than it actually um, uh, is, uh, I'm also saying, let's not be quick to put all these guys in the same room together. They've got their own stories. You know, they've got their own goals. Um, and what would the purpose uh, of, of doing that? W what would the purpose of doing that be? I would argue that it would make the stories fresher and last longer, you know, by, <laughs> by, by keeping them in their own universes and, you know, just having a more fair critique of each franchise yeah keeping them in their yeah. own little tupperware containers to keep Wait, them yeah yeah <laughs> uh, have you been storing flesh in your refrigerator perhaps the head of um an older woman in your fridge that you haven't been yes. telling me about i Taste. keep her in the refresher tray <laughs> Um, no, you need to keep her in the in the vegetable crisper so her head will be fresh that way. No, okay. <laughs> um, really but I'm and I'm not trying to segregate them, you know. But like we do in theology, you want to be able to make your observations and your critiques, um, you know, as objectively as possible. And it's so easy with horror movies and the horror genre to be subjective and. You know, the whole genre doesn't get a fair shake because of that. Yep, I concur. 
well, I think I think that's good <laughs> for a deep theological thought. Uh, I, I think so. I think we did a good job considering yeah. how after the first screening of this movie, we were like, okay, what theological strings can we pull? <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know. I feel the Friday the 13th series, it's one of those series that kind of like Halloween and I know I know we're trying to to your point about kind of keeping them in their own separate capsules but mm. at the same time like I just think they all have such meager beginnings with such meager yeah. like narrative like a simplistic narrative and then by the time we get to the end of the franchise uh it is so convoluted and so but like in a good way that kind of lends itself to our podcast, we can go really deep into Jason goes to hell because there's this whole mm-hmm. notion of Jason being undead and this weird demonic possession worm thing that comes. But it's like, that's <laughs> not in this movie. So it's like, yeah, yeah. so it's kind of like this evolution of our theological thought as we kind of in process are becoming <laughs> with this franchise. Um, so anyway, on that note, I guess we should rate it. So how would you rate this film out of 10 machetes? And what's your favorite kill? Jeez, uh, let's see. I think I'd give it um, a, an, uh, an even split of five out of 10 machetes. Um, the, it was an enjoyable movie. And Steve mm-hmm. Miner's skill as a director is definitely showing. Mm-hmm. Um, favorite kill? Uh, I don't know. It seems weird for me to call this a favorite kill, but um, uh, what's his name? The old man, crazy, uh, crazy Ralph, crazy Ralph. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know if that was my favorite kill, but it was just so surprising that I, I can't stop thinking about it. Like, like how did why why did he wander into this movie? It, it was it just for the purpose of being an uh adding to the body count? I don't know. It it just seems so surprising. And quite frankly, kind of mean because you know he's old, <laughs> and you know his mind is uh, um, obviously functioning in a different way, in a divergent way. So you know yeah. it was a surprising, it was a surprising kill and a mean kill. <laughs> I have to agree. Like that's my favorite death too. So I'm so shocked because, but for me, it's the Ooh. whole physics of it, like how that I know. Um, <laughs> over the entire tree and Jason kills him. It's just such a fascinating thing but a close second i think has to be oh that's something i was going to talk about which i didn't in this movie so just real quick is that yeah the speaking of the kids here like you're still rooting for them to like you feel sad when they die especially like someone like mark who is a lovable guy who just it was so nice yeah and yet he gets uh I think it's like a machete to the face and then rolls down the yeah. stuff. So it's like yeah. you feel sad, but like one of the more cathartic kills in here is when the skis ball, oh, what is his name? Um, Scott. Yeah, Scott gets caught in the so. rope trap and then his uh, mm-hmm. neck cut and stuff. So so that's the close second is Scott's death because it kind of is leaning more into that, oh, he deserves to die. But I still mm. like Rob's death the most, I think. Mm, um, yeah, I would rate this seven out of ten machetes, which mm. I think is what I rated the first film. Like both of them are really good to me and solid. I told you all that um, part three is my favorite, so we'll see if that can get up to an eight. I don't know because um, mm-hmm. I haven't seen it in the, like. Let's be real; I haven't yeah. seen it in, like probably three or four months. <laughs> I watch it so frequently, but anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, we'll get there. Uh, I don't think any of them re- really break above an eight for me, though. But we'll see. Mm, interesting. Um, yeah. Okay. So, uh, 
our next thing- movie. Oh, please go. Go ahead. Well, well, just just one more um one more um thing I wanted to bring up about Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. Thanks for reminding me about the character of Mark, uh, the the you know the nice guy in the wheelchair. Um, I'm blanking on um the actor who portrayed Mark, but it turns out he was one of the few openly gay actors working in Hollywood at the time, and he unfortunately passed away of AIDS. But there's a there's a documentary about his life and I'm blanking on the title of that right now, unfortunately, but it's on YouTube. And uh, when I remember that, I'm going to post that on social media. Tom McBride is the actor's name. And as you said, he Mm, passed away in 1995 at the age of 42. So very young Mm -hmm. um, from complications uh, due to AIDS uh, just a few weeks before his 43rd birthday. But like you said, gorgeous guy and really tragic. Um, I don't know what the um, documentary is. So yeah, please uh, yeah. please share that with me when you find that out. If, and um, if you, I, I definitely will. Um, and just you know, queering the movie a little bit. Um, he was just he was just so Mark was just so kind in this movie and so pretty. <laughs> Let me just say it. I I for me he was like the ingenue of the movie, and yeah. It's it's just such a tragedy, you know, that the actor passed away. But I would I would paint him uh, looking through our queer eyes as like the ingenue of the movie. Yeah, I, I think I found the name of the the movie. I think it's called Life and Death on the A List. Yes, yes, it is, and it's on YouTube Corker, for free. Corcoran, or I think so. That's definitely something I want to check out. And when we get to the Nightmare on Elm Street series, part two of that franchise also includes. Um, a gay actor but this unlike mark the portrayal mark in this film the portrayal of the actor in friday 13th like his character is very very queer and lots of gay overtones and so that kind of led to the actor kind of like not having a good career in hollywood after that um so mm. uh so so it's kind of interesting how that happened so yeah. something we will yep. definitely return to when we in season three when we do um Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm, looking forward to it, for uh, sure. Yep. Speaking of queer, <laughs> next our next movie is directed by the one of the queerest directors of all time, Joel <laughs> Schumacher. It's The Lost Boys, nineteen eighty seven. That old uh, queen. Right? I, 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 I wish you were still around. We um we started our podcast a year too late before he left this world. Unfortunately, yeah. Sadly, um. But yeah, he he's perhaps most known for the bat, adding nipples to the bat suit, and so that was <laughs> kind of the controversy of it all. But we have um, special guest uh, horror author Ben Monroe on that Yay! episode, so definitely tune in. Uh, ben is a fantastic author, uh, has some lots of short stories coming out, and also ha- mm-hmm. uh, and other stuff like that. So definitely check in for next week's episode and if you don't like horror it's a good kind of entry level to horror movie the lost boys um so yes so slashers aren't your thing i don't know why you'd be listening to this episode so you probably won't even why? hear but um if hear. you <laughs> yeah but if you have if you have friends who you're trying to get into the podcast uh, and they yeah. don't really like horror maybe you could recommend them to watch the lost boys and listen to our episode on that uh, but i think that that's it right anything yep. else you want to say 
yeah, no, I agree with you on um on our episode about the Lost Boys, and if anything else, the eighties nostalgia. <laughs> just just tune in for that. Oh, for sure. And speaking of kind of queer themes, we kind of go. We already recorded the episode, so spoiler. But we one of the things we talk about in our deep dive is some kind of the queerness of vampire stories. So stay tuned. It's it's a fun episode. Mm-hmm. But I think that's it yep. for our show. So I'll just do our outro. Yep. Um, that's it for our show. Our theme music was by Matt May, who also edited this episode. Horror Nerds at Church releases every Thursday. Please comment, rate, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, Facebook and Instagram at Horror Nerds at Church and Twitter at H-N-A-C-P-O-D for all the latest updates about upcoming films, news, and other announcements. Until next time, if you are trying to choose between becoming an interior decorator or becoming (laughs) a serial killer probably become an interior decorator it's a little bit more um a little bit (laughs) a little bit nicer way to society (laughs) society yeah but but pace why would anyone want to murder cereal but um i'll show myself out (laughs) and that's our show